Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, hello, Christ Community. It is good to be with you today. Let's take a moment and pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we believe that you have a word for each of us today. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you say in your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, I loved Nate and Kathy's story that we just watched. I love stories like that because they give us a picture of what God is offering to each of us, the opportunity to change. There there are some of you today who need to hear that good news. You need to know you are sick of yourself. You wish that you were different than you were, but you need to hear this. You are not stuck that way. God wants to set us free from the prisons that we've made for ourselves, the prisons of our addiction and our anger and our arrogance. He wants to liberate us from that. And the good news is this, that when we get to the place where we surrender to Christ, where we do what Nate did, where we say, I'm not in control anymore, God can and will change us. That's the good news that we're talking about today. We're gonna be continuing our series in Colossians chapter three. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. The series is called Christ in Us. And I think it is summed up really well in verse nine and 10 of this chapter where it says this, you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Last week, Pastor Jim talked about the first half of this, the putting off of the old self. When we put to death all of those sinful behaviors, our lust and our anger and our greed, the things that don't look like Jesus, we put them away. And he used this great analogy. He talked about if you've ever been working outside, maybe for a job or a project at your house, then you work all day long and you get sweaty and dirty. And by the end of the day, you're covered in grass and mud and you smell like gas and oil. You come into your house and you take off all of those dirty work clothes and you set them in a pile. And then you go and you take a shower and you cleanse all of the stink and all of the muck off of you and it feels so good. And then when you get out of the shower, you walk over to that pile of dirty work clothes and you put them back on. Why in the world would you do that? This is exactly what we're doing when we go back to our old sinful behavior. Jesus has cleansed us. He has made us clean. And then we go back to our lust and our anger and our greed and we put those things back on. Why would we want to do that? When I was discussing this with my community group this week, this analogy really struck home for a lot of people. But one person in our group, she said, you know, I kept thinking about that analogy and I really liked it, but I kept wondering, you know, if you've only got those old work clothes, of course you're gonna put them back on. What you really need is a new set of clothes which is a great insight because it's exactly what Paul offers us in the second half of this chapter. He describes the new clothes that we're supposed to put on in Christ. Let me begin reading in verse 12. It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another, any, any one of you who has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to see three things in this passage. Here's the first one. We must put on the character of Christ. We must put on the character of Christ. In verse 12, it begins with this list of virtues. Listen to these character qualities. It says, uh, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Uh, Verse 13 says, bear with each other, forgive each other. Uh, Verse 14 talks about putting on love. As you read this, it might sound a bit like a random list of virtues. It starts to sound a little bit like, be good, be good, be good, be good. And it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or reason for these character traits. But I actually think there is. This list of traits actually sounds like the most common description of God that we find in the Old Testament. The most frequent way God is described in the Old Testament. The first time he's described this way, it's when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's talking with God. And Moses has the boldness to say to God, show me your glory. Let me see what you're actually like. And this is what God says to him. He says, this is who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When Paul uses these qualities in this verse, he's saying, become like the God who made you. Like like he says before, be renewed in the image of your creator. This is amazing. He is saying we can actually become like God. But think about those traits more specifically. It's always helpful when you come across a list like this in the Bible to slow down and actually use it as a mirror to say, am I like this? So let's think about each of these. It says, clothe yourself with compassion. Are you a compassionate person? Compassion is when you recognize what's difficult in another person's life. When you say this, I I recognize is hard for you. And when you're not afraid to be with that person in the difficulty and in the pain. When you say what burdens you will burden me, that's compassion. Are you a compassionate person? Kindness. Are you a kind person? I think that kindness is really underrated. It's one of the most powerful things we can interject into a relationship. The warmth and the openness of kindness goes a really long way. Would people describe you as a kind person? Humility. Are you humble? Humility doesn't mean hating yourself. It doesn't mean thinking you're worthless. It's not actually the same thing as insecurity. The opposite, in fact. It's when you're so secure that you can actually forget about yourself for a little while and think more about another person. Are you a humble person? Gentleness, gentleness. Sometimes gentleness sounds like it's weakness, but God is gentle and there's nothing weak about the creator of the universe. Gentleness is when you have a strong hand with a soft touch. It's when you use your power not to destroy, but to build up other people. But people say that you are a gentle person. Patience. Patience is when you don't insist that other, keep, other people keep pace with your agenda and your uh, schedule for the day and your priorities. It's when you stop and you slow down for other people to actually be with them, to care about what their concerns are. 
If I ask your family, if I ask your coworkers, are they a patient person? What would they say about you? Forgive one another. Are you forgiving? Or do you hold on to grudges? Or can you let go of your bitterness and bear with other people, even when they're wrong? And love. Are you a loving person? Someone who loves well, who, who's actually looking out for other people, who is for other people, not just with your feelings, but with your words and your actions. Now I'll tell you this, when I read these character traits, I so desperately want to be this sort of person. I think that if I was like this, it would actually improve my life every single day. Let me give you one example of this. It's actually a, a simple, dumb kind of example, and that's kind of why I'm choosing it. It involves bagels. So this week I was making breakfast for my kids and I got into the kitchen before they did. So I was kind of getting a jump on things and I poured three bowls of cereal. And I thought, this is gonna go really smooth. It's gonna be such a great morning. And my kids came into the kitchen after they had gotten ready and they said, oh, we don't want cereal today. We want bagels. And I said, well, I poured cereal. So no, you're, you're not having bagels, you're having cereal. And I kind of said it in a way that communicated like you shouldn't have asked for that which wasn't really fair because most mornings they actually have a choice about what they have for breakfast. But it was inconvenient for me at that moment, so I decided to make it a problem for them. And of course, I realized this. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll get them the bagels. But I didn't do it cheerfully. I went and I just grumbled as I got the bagels out, which was kind of a pain because my wife, like a couple of days earlier, had put them in the freezer and frozen the bagels. And so now I'm like, well, okay, I guess that was a good idea. We don't go through the bagels fast enough. They would have gone stale, but this is frustrating for me right now. So I get the bagels out and I'm trying to like carve into these bagels. They're still frozen. They're hard as rock, but that's really dumb of me, but I'm impatient. So I'm just gnawing away at this. And so I, I managed to sort of start making the bagels and toast one. And then my wife comes into the kitchen and she's, she very kindly comes and says, hey, why don't I take care of the rest of that? I'll finish buttering it. No big deal. You go eat your breakfast. Very kind, thoughtful gesture. But I responded to her as if she was interrupting some important project I was doing. Like, why, what are you doing? I, I'm doing this. It was something I didn't even want to do and she was offering to take it from me, but I acted like she was the inconvenience. And what happened with all of this? What, what went wrong there? My family had a terrible morning that morning because I was being a jerk. And I had a terrible morning that morning because impatience and frustration and anger, they're not comfortable feelings to have. If I had even just a little bit more of the character described in this passage, my morning would have gone way better. My, my day would have gone way better. The sermon writing I was doing that day on Colossians 3 would have gone way better. Like I said, this was just 10 minutes of my day, an insignificant little portion. But those 10 minute chunks, they add up, don't they? And it's not just the small things. It's actually the bigger areas of our life. Our, our lack of compassion, our impatience, our arrogance, our bitterness. These are the things that are destroying our relationships and messing up our work life and messing up our inner lives. I mean, think of how different your life would be if you were actually the kind of person this passage describes. How much better would your life be? How much better would the lives of people around you be? Who would you rather have as a boss? Who would you rather have as your parent or your spouse? What kind of teacher or coach would motivate you more? Who would you rather be stuck at home with during shelter in place? A calloused person or a compassionate one? Someone who's harsh or someone who's gentle? The arrogant person or the humble one? Someone who's impatient or someone who's patient? 
A person who holds grudges or a person who forgives? The, the answer is obvious. But let's be honest, this is difficult for us. And the reason it's difficult is because these qualities feel vulnerable to us. When, when Paul says put off anger and put on compassion, we, we don't want to because anger is the way we def- protect ourselves. We defend ourselves with anger. Anger feels like strength to us, but gentleness and kindness and humility, they, they feel weak. But it turns out the opposite is actually true. It actually takes more strength to be compassionate than to be angry. Because to be compassionate, you've got to be open to other people. You've got to take risks with other people. You've got to be responsive to them. I heard someone say once that the reason we get angry is often because we're too weak to feel sad. I think that's true in this case. These qualities would improve our lives dramatically, but we've got to grow stronger in order to live them out. Uh, One first step to doing this is actually to begin to imagine what your life would be like, particular circumstances would be like if you actually responded the way Jesus would. So I don't know about you, but I replay conversations all the time in my head. If it's a stressful situation, the next day or so, it's always popping back in and I'm thinking, you know, what could I have said? You know, what would be the right comeback or the way to prove my point? And I, I do this over and over again. And it's not very helpful because mostly what it does is reinforce my defensiveness and my pride and my frustration about the situation. What if instead of doing that, I replayed the situation and asked, how would it have been different if I responded like Jesus, if I had these character qualities? Let's actually do that together right now. I want you to think of a time of conflict recently that you had. It might not have been an all-out fight, but sometime when there was tension in the conversation. I want you to think about it and imagine that moment. Okay, you got it? Now ask these questions. How would that have been different if you had used kind words instead of the words you used? Would that have changed the way the conversation went? How could you have communicated the same ideas you wanted to say, but do it with gentleness instead of being abrupt and harsh about it? How would you have done things differently if you approached the situation with compassion, asking the question, what about this is difficult for this person? Well, what are they afraid of? What, what pain in their life is causing them to act this way? What if instead of defending yourself, you approached with humility? Would that have changed the result of the conversation? Now, the point of this exercise is we've got to actually imagine an alternative to our automatic responses. If we don't do this, the next time we get into a conflict, we'll just default to the same old things. We actually have to imagine a different route for these things. Otherwise, we just put on those old, dirty work clothes rather than putting on the character of Christ. Now, imagining this is a good beginning, but it's not enough. Because willpower alone, deciding to be different alone, is not going to change us. We need the underlying condition of our heart to be changed if we want to be this sort of person. So what will actually change our hearts? Here's where we get to the second point. In order to put on the character of Christ, you need to be secure in your identity in Christ. Look again at verse 12. Notice how this starts. It does not start by telling us how to behave. It starts by telling us who we are. Verse 12 begins, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and so on. This verse describes us in three different ways. It says we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. All three of these are names that God gives to Israel in the Old Testament, but these are applied to anybody who's in Christ right now. What do these terms mean? What does it mean that in Christ we are chosen? When that word comes up in the Bible, a lot of people get uh, hung up on questions like, if we're chosen, does that mean God chooses who gets saved and who doesn't? 
And, and whose choice comes first? Does, do we choose God because he chose us or does God choose us because we chose him? And how does that all work? And those are important questions. They're interesting questions. They're worth pondering at some point. But sometimes they can distract us from the real reason God tells us we are chosen. God tells us we're chosen because he wants us to know how he feels about us. So like I said, I've got three kids and uh, they are three, six, and nine years old. And sometimes when I am tucking them into bed, I tell them the story. I say, have I ever told you the story about how your mom and I picked you out? You know, God, before you were born, he lined up all of the kids that could have been our kids, all the kids in the world. And mom and I, we walked along the line of, of kids and we, we looked at all of them. We thought, well, that, that'd be a nice kid. Maybe he'd be good or maybe she'd be good. But when we saw you, we said, God, can we have her and her and him? We, we want to be their parents. Can we have them? Now, my kids know that this is complete and utter nonsense. They know that children grow inside their mommy's tummy. And unless you adopt someone, you don't really have a say in which kid is yours. But they love to hear the story anyway. Why? Because they want to know that they are wanted. They love to hear that if we had the choice, we would still choose them. We want them to be our kids. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be wanted? It's not just kids. As a fully grown adult, I still crave that. And that's why it's such good news that God chooses us. He chooses us. He wants us. You know that when someone has the option of doing anything else, but they choose to hang out with you, that means they want to be with you. It feels so good, doesn't it? God didn't have to make us. He didn't have to save us. He didn't have to welcome us. He didn't have to forgive us. He didn't have to do anything for us, but he chose to. He wasn't forced, but he wants us. Do you hear that? God wants you. In Christ, you are chosen. In Christ, you are also holy. You're holy. Now, holy is kind of a weird churchy word. Uh, we don't use it very often in ordinary conversation unless it comes before the word cow, smokes, or mackerel, or some other words that I'm sure none of you ever use. But the main idea of holiness is to be set apart. So it's when you take something and you set it aside for a special purpose. Like in the Old Testament, everybody had a lamp in their home, but there was one lamp that was in the temple of God. It looked like all the other lamps, but it was set apart for a special purpose. And what that meant, it was only used for that and it couldn't be used for ordinary things. Think about it like this. If a football player is drafted to a team, prior to being drafted, they're allowed to wear a shirt or a hat with the logo of any team on it. They're allowed to play a game of pickup football with their friends. They can do all sorts of things that once they're drafted, they're no longer allowed to do. They can only wear the logo of that team. They can only play games with that team. There might even be a code of conduct, behavior that they have to have in public because they belong to that team and they represent that team. This is what holiness means. It means that you no longer can just do whatever you want. You are set apart for a purpose and it changes your behavior. Or think about a wedding dress. A wedding dress, when you think about it, is just a fancy white dress, right? There's no law, there's no rule that says you can't wear it in all sorts of circumstances. But you never see someone wearing a wedding dress in a Starbucks or working out. Even if you go to a fancy restaurant or to a dance, you don't see someone wearing a wedding dress. Why? Because a wedding dress is set apart for one special day, one special purpose, and you don't just use it for ordinary things. This is what holiness means. But why would someone want to be holy? Why is that good news? Because it means that you're not ordinary. 
that God has set you aside for a purpose. You are set aside for something special. You are called to something higher and better. And the way you live will never be the same because of that. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are also dearly loved. You are dearly loved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you? I mean, you you probably could ask just about anybody on the street if they believe in God, they probably would say, yeah, God is a God of love. But I'm not just talking about, do you agree with that statement? I'm talking about whether or not you believe it down here in your gut. Do you believe that you are loved? One of the most astounding sentences in the entire Bible is this time when Jesus is praying. He is talking to God the Father and he says, and he's, he's praying about us. He's praying about people who would believe in him. And he says to the Father, you have loved them just as you have loved me. You catch that? The Father loves us the same way that he loves Jesus. Now, how much does the Father love his Son? A whole lot. But before the world was made, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were together. And every time the Father looked at his Son, his heart exploded with more joy than you could possibly imagine. But when Jesus was baptized, as Jesus came up out of the water, God the Father shouted from heaven. He said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You know what that means? It was God saying, I love him. I like him and he makes me happy. Now, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he looks at you through Jesus. He sees you and reacts to you just like he would to his own son. And so what he says about you is this, this is my son, this is my daughter. I love you, I like you, and you make me happy. Do you believe that? It's astounding, it's it's hard to imagine, but it's actually true. That is who God says you are. You are dearly loved. So that's what verse 12 says about who we are. But look at verse 12 again. It's really important to see the order of things here. It does not say, it does not say, therefore, so that you can become God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these things. It says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion and kindness and so on. If you are in Christ, you are already all of these things. You do not have to do anything in addition to secure this status. You are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. And realizing this is actually the key to becoming a compassionate, kind, humble person. The other day, I was walking through my neighborhood and I noticed a house that had been teepeed. I know, seriously. Normally, I wouldn't have thought very much about it other than to thank God I'm no longer in youth ministry, which means it wasn't my house. But in this era where oil is worth less than zero and stores can't keep toilet paper on the shelves, this was astounding. Using toilet paper in a prank, that's like filling water balloons with champagne. That's like egging a house with caviar. That's like ding-dong ditching someone and leaving a flaming bag of money on their step. Who would do that? To use teepee in, in a prank is like flaunting your privilege. But here's a question. Why did the stores run out of toilet paper in the first place? It's because people were afraid that they wouldn't have enough. It it made people do all sorts of crazy things just to get what they thought they needed. People got in fights in the store over toilet paper. People stole toilet paper from public restrooms. People used other paper products that weren't safe to flush. And all because they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to get what they needed. Do you know the reason why we keep going back to those old behaviors we talked about last week? anger and lust and greed? It's because we're not convinced. We are afraid that we won't get what we need. 
I'll tell you what we need. We need to know that we are chosen and wanted. We need to know that we are holy and set apart for a purpose. We need to know that we are dearly loved. And we don't, when we don't feel like we're getting those things, we go looking for them everywhere we can. That, that list of sins that we talked about last week, that is a description of, of someone who is desperately looking for anything, anywhere that will make them feel chosen and special and loved. We, we go looking for sexual partners, real or virtual, that will make us feel desired. We, we lie in order to cover up all, all the different things we think people won't love us for. We get angry at anything that stands in the way of us getting what we think we need. Every sin can be traced back to our attempt to get from someone or something the things we're supposed to get from God. And when they don't give it to us, we turn on them. This is what was going on with me in the bagel situation. The reason I got frustrated with my family then was not because they extended the time of breakfast or made it a little bit more difficult. That day, I had already been thinking about my, what I needed to do at work. And I was thinking about some conversations that I was going to have and I was a little bit intimidated by it. And there were some tasks I needed to do and I was kind of feeling daunted and overwhelmed by those things. And, and already my heart was talking to me saying, you know, if you don't do those things well, those people aren't going to like you anymore. Or, or if you don't do this uh, well, if that conversation doesn't go well, well, then things are going to fall apart. They won't want you. They won't love you. My heart was lying to me about that saying, you need those things, but you're not going to get it. So when the first thing in the morning doesn't go well for me. I'm thinking, oh man, the whole rest of the day isn't going to go well. And already I'm thinking, I'm not going to get what I need. And so my defenses go up and I get frustrated. I get impatient. I get angry. Does that ever happen to you? But what happens when we know deep down at the core, when we are convinced that we are already chosen, holy, and dearly loved, when those things are not achievements to be earned, but gifts that we have already received, it cuts sin right at the root. We, we don't need to look to those other things to meet our needs anymore. And more than that, it frees us up to actually be like Christ. When you know that you're loved, you can be compassionate towards other people. You're, you're actually going to be secure enough to care about their pain and strong enough not to be swept away by it. When you know that you're loved, you can actually show love towards others without being harsh or defensive or in a hurry. When you know that you are chosen and wanted by God, you can actually be humble. You don't have to try to prove anything to anybody. When you have experienced forgiveness, you can freely forgive others. You aren't threatened by letting go of your bitterness. Think of it this way. Jesus was chosen, holy, and dearly loved. And when you start to see yourself the way he saw himself, you actually start to act like him. In order to put on the character of Christ, we need to be secure in our identity in Christ. Verse 16 tells us how it gets deep inside, gives us some practices for this. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In order to be secure in our identity in Christ, we need to soak in the message of Christ. We need to soak in the message of Christ. But what, what does it mean to let the message of Christ dwell among you richly? Well, the message of Christ is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the message not about what you need to do to fix up your life. It's the message about how Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's about how God stepped down out of heaven and into our brokenness and our guilt and our mess. And he died for our sins and he rose the victor over death. 
Stuff we could never do for ourselves. It's the message that we don't need to be defined by our failures or our feelings or our friends. We are defined by what Jesus did for us. That's the message of Christ. But what does it mean for that message to dwell among a group of people? It means that within the community, people are always talking about what Jesus did. It means that we are regularly talking about the Bible together. It means that when we encourage each other, we don't just say, oh yeah, you can do it. We keep telling people, here's how Jesus did it. Here's what he accomplished for you. You're going to be okay because of that. It means always reminding each other about what's true about us in Christ. That's actually what it means to teach and admonish one another. It's the reason why community groups and care night and calling up friends to pray for each other is so important, especially right now. Even when we can only do it from afar, we need each other more than ever. When you're not sure if you're going to be okay, if you're going to have enough, and you're tempted to put back on the old self, or you have failed to put on the new self, you need other people who can remind you of what's true, even when you've forgotten it, that in Christ you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Paul actually mentions two specific practices that help us with this. The the first one is worship, worship. Uh, One of the ways we get the truth about Christ into our hearts is by singing, singing psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit. That's the way Paul puts it. Why is this so important? Well, for one thing, singing activates every part of us, our body, our mind, our emotions. That's why what we sing actually sticks with us. And then later when we need it, it can bubble up to the surface. But there's more than that. There's actually kind of a a spiritual law that says you become like what you worship. So if you want to become a compassionate, patient, forgiving person, the very best thing you can do is to adore the one who is compassionate and patient and forgiving and you'll become like him. Now, I would unpack this more, but I actually did a whole sermon about this about a year and a half ago. It's called Passionate Worshippers. You can find that on our website. It's also a great place to go if you're curious about why we do our worship services the way we do at Christ Community. That message explains a lot of that. The other practice that Paul mentions is gratitude. Gratitude helps us soak in the message of Christ. Notice how this comes up all throughout the passage. In verse 15, it says, be thankful. In verse 16, it says, sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17 says, we should always be giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. Thankfulness is this. Thankfulness is when you let the gifts of God bounce your eyes back up to look at the person of God. Thankfulness is when you say, I'm not going to take this food or this breath or this friend or this enjoyable moment for granted. It's not automatic. It's not just luck that I have this. It's not even my hard work and my smarts that got me these things. It all comes from the hand of God, the God who loves me. Thankfulness is choosing to see your circumstances through the lens of your identity, of saying, I am chosen, holy, and dearly loved. And so that's going to be how I interpret the things that happen to me. So if I am loved by God, then every good gift is God whispering to me, hey, I love you. I thought you might enjoy this. If I am holy and set apart for a purpose by God, then every moment God is whispering to me, you're not here by accident. There's a purpose for you in this moment. Do you want to have it? And so gratitude, saying thank you, is just a way of acknowledging that. This is even more important when things are difficult, when when things are hard, like right now. That when we deliberately choose to look at our life and find signs of God's love, it changes how we see even the really, really bad things. It, It helps not just to look for kind of the positive things in the midst of the negative, 
What really, really helps is to look at the things that are always true, no matter what our circumstances are. The things that are true about us in Christ, the things that Christ has done, regardless of what's happening around us, how he has forgiven us and adopted us and given us a hope and a future. You can always thank God for those things. What thankfulness does is it helps us realize that everything good comes from Christ. We don't deserve any little bit of it. We deserve condemnation and yet God is giving and forgiving. And when we realize this, it melts our hearts. It opens us up, it unclenches us. We, we stop grabbing onto things like we're desperate to hold on to whatever we have because it's not gonna be enough. And it frees us to love like Jesus. And all the vulnerability of compassion, it, it no longer threatens us anymore. When we soak in the message of Christ, we become secure in our identity in Christ, which is how we put on the character of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give each of us the power to do this, to actually put off the old self and put on the new self. We, we pray that we would understand who you say we are in Christ. We pray that we would see ourselves as loved by you. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, the one who is chosen, holy, and dearly loved, Jesus Christ. Amen.